Mets fans, I want to take a quick break from talking baseball and let you know about the next top prospect in building a smart home. Eufy Video Smart Lock E330 is that big time new star prospect. The Eufy Video Smart Lock E330 is a smart lock, a 2K resolution camera, and a doorbell. It's three devices in one, triple the security. You know triples are rare in baseball, but not with Eufy. You can have everything in one device rather than install many pieces on your front door. It's not just for security, but also for convenience. Just the other night, I had tons of packages in the rain. Rather than fumble for my keys, I easily entered my home. This is big since I have four dogs who are impatiently waiting for me at the door. No more concerns about losing keys, and you could assign passwords to your family members. Worried about when your loved ones are getting home? Eufy allows you to see them coming back home via the integrated camera. Hey Mets fans, this is a home run. I had a competitive product before Eufy, and it's the difference between a one-dimensional hitter and a five-tool player. Eufy is that five-tool superstar. Go to eufy.com, that's E-U-F-Y.com to learn more. Already sold? Go to Amazon and get your Eufy Video Smart Lock E330 today. Want to go to the store? Best Buy will have it starting around May 20th. Get complete control over your front door at ease with the Eufy Video Smart Lock E330 today. Wilson, you sent the game-winning email at the buzzer, avoiding a 4.55 meeting on everyone's calendar. How did you do it? I got a huge assist from Grammarly, an AI writing partner that helped me make my point. 96% of Grammarly users say that it helps them craft more impactful writing. Would you agree? Grammarly helped adjust my tone to navigate tough work conversations. And it works everywhere I write, so I can quickly communicate effectively. Your teammate used Grammarly to summarize an important document, making a three-pointer. How did he do it? It only took one click. When everyone uses Grammarly, everything just makes sense. You made an incredible slam dunk to end the game. The meeting was canceled, and your team will go home champions. Go to Grammarly.com slash podcast to download it for free. That's Grammarly.com slash podcast. Easier said, done. It's good turn back time today because on this date in history, I never the day well, the Mets, after a lot, after many and much plotting, finally pulled the trigger on a Mike Piazza trade who had played five games in Miami after the uh, people out in L.A. didn't want to give him a big contract. They traded him to the Marlins, and then later on, he wasn't going to last there forever. After they had won a championship the year before, they were not going to spend that kind of money. And then he and everybody else got traded up to New York, and he ended up with the Mets in 98. He came on Memorial Day weekend. They played the Brewers, and boy, the Mets were an overachieving group with Bobby Valentine. They had been pretty competitive the year before. They needed somebody who was going to sell some tickets and give them a lot of presence in that lineup. That's exactly what Piazza did, and it began right away against Milwaukee. Listen to Fran Healy on the play-by-play. Runner on first base, Matt Franco. And there's a one-time base hit in the gap. Here comes Franco. They're going to send him. He has it with a double. And Franco's safe at the plate. He has it at third. Mets lead to zip. That really, really ignited the Mets. He was very good in New York. He hit 23 home runs. And 76 RBIs in about 100 and some odd games. Big hits in September. Piazza was just a... Now, he was a little streaky at times. He got tired second halves of the year, sometimes late, because he had a catch all the time. But, you know, power to right center was superb. Yeah, this, of course, against the Expos during the year. He had a big series late in the year against the Astros. Now, the Mets somehow lost their last five games. They got swept in Atlanta the last weekend of the year. And the Giants came out of nowhere to tie the Cubs to the wild card, and then the Cubs beat the Giants in a one-game playoff. And the Mets should have been in that one-game playoff long before the Giants should have been. So it ended poorly that year for New York. But in 99, they were good. Uh, They beat the Diamondbacks in a playoff series, gave the Braves a run. 2000, they were very, very good, got all the way out of the World Series. They had a couple of moments with Piazza. They didn't finish the deal. They got, you know, hurt by the Yankees. But this was a move the Mets had to make. It worked out. It put him on the back page, and Piazza always used to hit Yankee pitching, and we all know he destroyed Clemens. Mets are amazing, 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 amazing. There's a fly ball hit out to the left, waiting is Jones. The Mets-
lips of the world champion. Here's the one-two pitch. Check him out. Steve has 19 strikeouts. Swung on, hit on the ground towards first. Jones on the run. This one has a chance. Home run. Mike Piazza and the Mets lead three to two. To left field. Floyd. And after winning rough shot over the National League, the Mets have a title to show for it. 2006 National League East champions. Here's the payoff pitch from Familia to Fowler on the way. And it's in there. Strike three called. The Mets win the pennant. The New York Mets it's another edition of the Talkie Mets podcast here on this Sunday, June 16th, 2019. Of course, I'm your host, Mike Silva. You can check me out all the time at MetsmorizedOnline.com. Send me a tweet at Mike Silva Media, and you get the show on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, pretty much whatever podcasting service you desire. Happy Father's Day, everyone. Hope you're all doing well. I know that you're probably expecting me to come on today. And I'm on actually a little bit earlier. I'm actually coming to you before the final game of the Mets-Cardinals series and talk about the wild weekend, more wild stuff going on around the Mets, and then a critical road trip ahead. And there's time for all that. What I am going to do is maybe for a little treat on this Father's Day is take a little bit of a time travel. And on Thursday night, you probably heard him on the broadcast with Gary Cohen and Keith Hernandez, but Mike Piazza was in town. And you all know if you listen to the podcast. I had his wife Alicia on over the uh, the winter. We talked about their venture with the uh, soccer team, AC Reggiana. And um, if there was ever an opportunity to talk to Mike, I said, hey, Mike, if you ever you know want to talk, I, I, I'd love to have you on. And he graciously agreed. Now, it's hard with this, in all honesty, to have someone like Mike Piazza on because he's been in, in you know, he's had a Hall of Fame speech and the Hall of Fame year and all the interviews that have been done over the years, Clemens and 9-11, it gets old. So how do I do this? Back in 2007, when I first started doing these alumni interviews, nobody was doing that. The mainstream media wasn't doing it. So when I had guys like Daryl Strawberry and Danny Heap and Gary Carter and Scott Brocious and so on and so forth, when that was the old New York baseball talk show, I felt like it was I was getting information out there for the first time. I was learning stuff while I was doing the interview. Now, the Mets have their own with Jay Horowitz Alumni Podcast, so there's stuff out there already. So why would you listen to this if I'm reiterating or regurgitating the same thing? This is not a, a highlight reel for my career. You don't need that. You need to be entertained. You want to have your hour of your life spent well. So I'm hoping that I accomplish that. Uh, Mike and I got into his early years with the Dodgers, taking over for a very popular catcher in Mike Sosha, a well-respected, well-regarded catcher. We talked about catching analytics and framing and, and how maybe he would be viewed by today's standards with the analytics out there, blocking the plate, how that's changed and his thoughts on that. We get into the transition from the Dodgers to the Mets that wild week when he was traded and and his feelings that year and, and handling the media and how back then you couldn't control the message. The media controlled the message and maybe he wasn't as bad as everyone made him out to be during those early months with the Mets when you start to dive into the the numbers. And, of course, his leadership style, because as the owner of AC Reggiana, even though he wasn't the coach, Mike came in and uh, was making you know fiery speeches in the clubhouse. We've read things about that. That's not the portrait that was portrayed as with him as a player. He was known as more of a on-the-field leader by example. So, I hope I accomplish what I set out to do, which is to give you a different view of Mike Piazza, a different feel of who he is, maybe get some other memories uh, out of him. I think I did that. Hopefully you agree. So I'm not going to make this a long intro. This is about the, the guest at hand. Let's take a quick break. When we return, Hall of Famer, former Met, Mike Piazza will join us on the Talking Mets podcast. We'll be back with more right after this. Number 31. Piazza. Piazza rips it. Will it stay fair? Goodbye, home run! 
when you see the type of power and the type of solid stroke that Mike has, I'm telling you, you can go through the history books. You can go through any age of history. You'll find very few people who had that tremendous ability. High fly ball to deep left field. Way, way back. It's going. Yeah, there it goes. Mike Piazza, a three-run homer. A high drive to center. Bernie back on the track, near the wall. A grand slam. Piazza hit the ball right over the 408-foot sign to dead center. It's a grand slam. Piazza Black. 2-1 to Piazza. is going to be the bat. And it's hit deep to left center. Andrew Jones on the run. This one has a chance. Home run by Piazza. And the Mets lead 3-2. It was almost like a blur to me. It was almost like a dream, sort of surreal. And here's the man. The Mets want up in this spot. Down a run late in the game. A high fly ball to right field. It's pretty deep. Back goes Langerhans on the track. At the wall. It's out of here. Mike Piazza with an opposite field three-run homer. 2-2 two, two to Piazza. Swinging a drive toward the gap in right center field. It's deep. Looking up Hidalgo. It's out of here. Piazza goes deep. A three-run homer for Mike Piazza. Hampton with a count of three and one. For the first time since 1986, the Mets are going to the World Series. Piazza's 32nd home run of the year. His 200th career home run. Right center field. Hit well. And there's the record. Mike Piazza off the big board in Shea. And he is now officially the greatest home run hitting catcher in the history of the game. You have given me the greatest gift and have graciously taken me into your family. Looking out today at all the incredible sea of blue and orange brings back the greatest time of my life. You guys are serious. We didn't get off on the best foot, but we both stayed with it. At first, I was pressing to make you cheer and wasn't doing the job. You didn't take it easy on me, and I am better because of it. Sometimes a jockey whips a horse. It isn't always pleasant to watch, but it gets results. The eight years we spent together went by way too fast. The thing I miss most is making you cheer. No fans rock the house like Mets fans. You are passionate, loyal, intelligent, and love this great game. To be the only second Met to enter the Hall of Fame following Tom Seaver brings me great pride and joy. Joining us, former Met, Hall of Famer. You guys know him, Mike Piazza. Not really a big introduction needed. Mike, uh, pleasure to have you on. Uh, you're in New York. I guess you're uh, catching up with the Mets as you do from time to time. How, how are you? I'm good. Thank you very much. Yes, um, very excited to be part of the Mets alumni, obviously, and um, so blessed to come in and, and do um, a few events for the Mets during the season, obviously spring training. And then I come in from time to time. And obviously this year is a big year with the 50th anniversary of the 69 Miracle Mets. So, um, but yeah, it's, it's great to be back in the city and, and go out to the ballpark and, and see all the fans and do Q and A's with, uh, with the fans and season ticket holders and things like that. So it's a lot of fun for me. You know, having you on, I mean, you've done so many interviews, you've talked so much about your career, 
So I was like, hey, you know, where do you start? And I, I was looking at your baseball reference page, and I said, you know what? I, I don't ever remember you talking about September 1st, 1992. And I'm sure you know what that day is, and I was curious your memories of that day. Yeah, no, that was an interesting day. I mean, obviously, first year, the first day in the, the big leagues is always a thrill, especially the path that I I, I uh was fortunate and unfortunate enough to take at times, <clears throat> but ultimately, um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's also to have a, uh, the first day in Wrigley Field was pretty special. I mean, as a kid and, and growing up as a baseball fan, and I'm sure you're well aware of, of the, the historical significance of Wrigley Field and the day games, and so um, it's euphoric. I mean, it's a culmination of a lot of work and all the time and effort that you put in uh, and to achieve a goal that you thought many times in your life was impossible is, is pretty overwhelming and emotional. So yeah, it's, it's something, it's definitely something that uh, resonates even today. When I look back, it's, it's tough not to look back and, and not be emotional about it. And you talked about the challenges. Obviously, everybody knows about where you were drafted and making your way through the system. And, and even in 1992, earlier that year, you weren't even on the top prospect list. It wasn't until the following year. Uh, but you're also following Mike Sosha, who was a solid yeah. longtime catcher for the Dodgers, team leader. Um, it's, that's not easy. I don't think anyone really talks about that, following a popular player with the expectations, with your relationship with Tommy Lasorda. I mean, that must yeah. have been tough, too, and, 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 and that's a challenge as well. Well, it was very difficult, and especially catching a veteran staff uh, with names like Ole Hershiser and Tom Candiotti and Kevin Gross and uh, Roger McDowell and John Candelaria and Bobby Ojeda and guys like that. Um, and I think, uh, as I mentioned, and I mentioned this in my Hall of Fame speech uh, when I thanked Tommy, in the sense that the Dodgers wanted to keep Mike Sosha that year, my rookie year, 93, as kind of a backup, uh, quote-unquote, insurance policy if for some reason I faltered and wasn't able to uh, step into the role and, and produce. And Tommy was vehemently against it and campaigned against it and said, I can't have Mike Sosha on the bench with Mike uh, Piazza trying to um, – to establish himself as as the catcher because if for some reason I fall down or I'm not uh, calling a game the way Oral Hershiser wants the game called, they're going to be lobbying to get Mike Sosha to play. So um, as much as, as as Tommy is a is a big personality and has a lot of <laughs> a lot of the big the grand ambassador of baseball and, and has these stories that people have heard many times, he also is a very very smart baseball man. I mean, his triumphs in the World Series and uh, all of the accomplishments that he has obviously is, are significant, but that was something that he was very aware and very instinctive to, to know that it would be, wouldn't be good for Mike to be on the team that year. You can follow Mike on Twitter at Mike Piazza 31, uh, as well as Instagram. He's also on Facebook. So check him out if you want to interact with him. On social media, you know, there's a lot of bad that comes out of analytics. Uh, everyone debates it today, but that wasn't around when you were a player. And, and now some sites will go back and they'll evaluate. And throughout your career, everyone talked about your offense, your home runs and all that. But, mm -hmm. you know, as I read, there was a lot of things. And I do remember guys like Al Leiter talking about how they enjoyed throwing to you. And, the, and having talked to catchers, the work that goes into being a good framer, uh, calling a game. Uh, the game is different, but you were great at blocking the plate, uh, and you're an important mm -hmm. offensive player. So that's a that's not a you know that's a scary thing for a manager seeing you go there and get clobbered uh, uh, at different points. Yeah. Uh, I'm sure you took pride in it. Nobody talks about it, but you you actually uh, come out really well when it comes to framing. And obviously, game calling is more of an anecdotal with the pitchers, but you come out well with that, and yeah. that's not really talked about all that much. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. And um, it's tough for me, obviously, to to lobby for myself uh, from the defensive thing. And, and I think at times there was definitely I was stigmatized a little bit in a sense that um, because I caught so much as well, um, I think my arm strength 
as my career wore on, started deteriorating a little bit. And truth be told, um, I when I retired, I didn't realize I took an MRI with the Oakland A's and I had three small tears in my rotator that I'd never uh, been uh, addressed or fixed. So I think, like you said, I mean, and I mentioned before, catchers are, are obviously throwing and throwing runners out is an important part of the job. But I think more importantly is as the, the points that you mentioned to call a game, uh, receive the ball, framing, however you want to label it, uh, blocking home plate, which now obviously the rules have changed where guys can't clobber you if there's no uh, – if it, it just, just for no reason whatsoever. Um, and uh, pop-ups, you know, which are very important. I, I really prided myself uh, in, in pop-ups. I, I, I felt like I caught a lot more than, than uh, the average guy as well. So those other things to the game that really um, are important to the defensive side of catching, and I think there was – and I'm not quoting, not, don't hold me to a number, but – I think six six times in my career, the staff of my team had the lowest DRA in the league, which obviously I would not take a lot of credit for. But um, I did enjoy catching. I loved uh, the position, and I think my knowledge of hitting made me a better catcher. And I believed a lot of players and a lot of pitchers, um, even guys through even retirement said how much they really enjoyed throwing to me. I mean, I caught Tom Candiotti, a knuckleballer my rookie year, who was very difficult. So, yeah, I mean, um, obviously it's it's something that is difficult for me to brag about, but it's something that I feel is very significant in uh, in, in my record. 700 innings with Candiotti, that must be the most 700 stressful innings you could have, especially with runners on third, runners on base. But that's true. You caught a knuckleball. That's not that's not common anymore. You're one of the few in the last 25 years. Well, a funny story about Tom Candiotti is we were playing the 93 Giants, uh, and that was a team that won 103 games and didn't make the playoffs. In Candlestick Park, and it was in June, and we played them in a three-game series. And the smallest crowd for that series was 68,000 people at Candlestick Park. And on a Sunday afternoon with, like, 40-mile-an-hour winds, Tom Kenyatta had bases loaded and no outs, and he had Bonds, Matt Williams, and I think Robbie Thompson coming up to the plate. And he calls me out to the mound, and he says, all right, Mike, he goes, we're going to throw all knuckleballs and all of them are going to be hard. And he struck out the side, and the last one hit me right in the throat and went down. And I picked <laughs> it up and tagged the plate because the bases were loaded. So, yes, it was uh, it was definitely an experience. And Tommy was really great. He had a great curveball, too. So he threw a knuckleball, but he had a really good curveball, which he could throw any time for a strike. So he, he was a lot of fun to catch, but, but definitely uh, – when I showed up that night, it was uh, the night before. I had a few, a few trouble, had a little trouble sleeping because he was tough. You, uh, you talk about catching, and and that's where you were your career. Do you ever think about, you know, the, you you mentioned the offensive side, the wear and tear, and mm -hmm. and as your career went on, you played a little first base at the end of your career, kind of pushed into that. But did you ever think about, you yeah. know, if I had just had the Dodgers push me into Sunday first base, maybe every other day? I know that your numbers, your Hall of Fame resume is different, and I understand that, but do you think it might have had a, a, a way different career offensively, and would you have been more open to that looking back now, or was that something that it, it didn't matter to you? It would have been the same thing all, all along. Oh, I agree with you. Yeah, I think that was a mistake for me looking back. I mean, one of the regrets was I believe I played a little first base in spring training. I think it was either 94 or 95. And uh, I don't know if it was like I was openly discouraging it. I don't remember discouraging it, or I think Tommy mentioned it, and for some reason it was shelved. I don't know if there was some sensitivity there with our other first baseman. I I, I don't remember right? because you know if you don't if you remember as well the Dodgers they had Eric Carlos and they also had Henry Rodriguez who was a really good first baseman hit some home runs and for the Montreal after he left the Dodgers and and um, for the Expos and the Cubs. And so I, I don't know. I think because of maybe 
uh, at the time Henry was left playing a little bit and, and he was doing other positions and Eric was pretty much playing every day. Cause I think Eric Carroll, I mean, I think he played almost every game. So um, I think it was just because of that, because we just figured uh, Eric was never coming down the lineup and he was a really good run producer too. I, I probably one of the underrated players, but yeah, to get back to your point, I believe uh, it probably would have helped me play a few more years at the end if I had that in my bag, because when I tried it with the Mets, I think I was, was just a little too, uh, there was too much time that passed and um, I wasn't comfortable. And obviously we didn't have a good team and I made a few errors early in the year and it just, it just wasn't good. And so we, we kind of scrapped that idea. And, um, and so, yeah, I mean, I, I kind of agree with you. And, and it's not easy. I mean, everyone says they'll throw it. And look, I never played at a high level. I played first base. And it's a little different when you're in Sandlot that throwing balls to you. But you're you're getting, you know, 95-mile-an-hour balls in the dirt. You know, people look at Pete Alonzo. Sometimes they look at the stretches that he does, and I'm like, I probably wouldn't be able to get out of bed the next day or the next, the next yeah. day at that point. It's hard. I think everybody forgets that. I think there's more appreciation for the nuances of different positions, whereas maybe when you played earlier in your career, it was like, ah, you know, just go play left field, go play first base. I mean, yeah. you know, you're an athlete, you're a professional. It's, it's, it's not just like, you know, you have a glove, glove doesn't mean you're a first baseman, you're playing first base. So I think that's the part everyone forgets. They just three out there and it, it, it would have taken a long time, I think, at any point in your career to really get where you wanted to be, knowing how prideful you are. Well, case in point, I mean, Keith Hernandez, Mets fans, I don't really feel, uh, well, we all appreciate Keith Hernandez, but as a ball player, it's incredible to imagine. You you can't imagine how good he was defensively at first base. And I remember when I was coming up through the minor leagues, there was a bunting coach, believe it or not, with the Dodgers. His name was Dick McLaughlin. He had this bunting cage with the machine. And if you made a crappy butt, he would say, ah, Hernandez turns that into two. That was his number one line, you know. Ah, he goes, Hernandez would turn that into two. So, um, yes, you're correct. I don't think people understand. And I remember going to first base, I think in, I forget what year, 2001 or two, I think two or three at the end of the year. And the first hitter was some kid, some Latin guy from the uh, Pirates. And he hit, I mean, I think it was playing, and he hit an absolute rocket right at me and I caught the ball and, but, but, you know, it was like a, like a, a hundred uh, foot uh, slider, you know, going a hundred miles an hour. <laughs> I was like thinking to myself, man, you know, I, 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 let me get back behind the plate where it's safe. Number one, because when you're playing up like that, it was, uh, it was uh, definitely uh, a change and a, and a little scary, but I will say I did on the, I think it was the Subway Series I turned a double play I think on Tony Clark uh, which I think is the highlight of my first base career so we'll just leave it at that. You know when I I know it was unfortunate what happened to Buster Posey and that was after retirement but I remember all the outrage over the blocking of the plate we just talked about it and they changed the rules and I don't know what your thoughts are on yeah. changing the rules everybody has an opinion but I'm like I don't remember people really caring that people clobbered you I mean that one uh, replay uh, the Atlanta game where Angel Hernandez made that bad call you got clobbered on that uh-huh. play that gets replayed a lot so I don't remember everyone really worrying about you and you know you're you know arguably if people want to debate the best hitting catcher of all time. So what did you think when you saw that? Were you like, maybe you should have thought of that 20 years ago? Do you like the rule? Do you think we're kind of going too far? I mean, what could you share about that? I, I, I think it's, I think it's a two, it's a two point issue. Uh, when I played guys would clobber you. But I only remember maybe once or twice. I mean, the angel Hernandez called you. Absolutely. I thought that was a dirty play. I think there's a difference between a guy who's coming around and, and, you know, for whatever reason, maybe the catcher has the ball and he's trying to jar, jar the ball loose or um, it, it, obviously he feels like he – most of the time the guy's out anyway. So I think it got to the point where some of these guys that they just thought, you know, they wanted to put a catcher on their mantelpiece or maybe in the case like Brian Jordan, he was a football player at University of Richmond. So – um, when he was coming around third base, I knew it. But I think a lot of the catchers got away from knowledge, knowing who's running, knowing who has the, the, the relay arm, outfielder arms. 
obviously when I played with the Dodgers and Ralph Mondesi and Ralph Mondesi hit a rocket arm, I would get the ball in time. And if a guy tried to run me over, I would just olay him like a bullfighter. I wouldn't really look for contact. But I think it got to the point to where guys were, were coming around, looking to make a highlight, looking to, to hurt a catcher, not just try to score a run. Uh, so I think maybe, it, you know, and you know, the dynamics have changed. I, I, I don't, and I, and I really, like I said, I think twice in my career, you mentioned, I think, um, I forget the player for Atlanta on that play, but then another was a guy, Mike Kelly for Atlanta, who actually, I felt stepped across the plate and tried to hit me and tried to hurt me. And we almost had a brawl in LA. So that's only twice in my career. And obviously I've caught, you know, 15 years or so. So I, I think it was unfortunate. Um, the pose, the Buster Posey play, he was definitely in a bad position. I don't know if the guy really felt like he was going to hurt him or trying to hurt him, but I think it, unfortunately it was cause and effect. So I, does that make any sense? I think. Yeah, no, a little. absolutely. I, I, I think it does. And, you know, as, and we have Mike Piazza, as you guys know, on the air, check him out on Twitter at Mike Piazza 31. Uh, I was, you know, we were, I was listening to another podcast the other day, and they talked about, you know, how the turn of events, things change, and your career, you're, you're in the Hall of Fame as a Met, you, you know, everyone knows the World Series, 9/11 home run, all that stuff. But if Todd Huntley doesn't tear his arm up, if you don't get traded to Miami, if you yeah. don't have the dispute with the Dodgers, it's amazing. Do you ever think back to that week in '98, that season? That was a crazy season for you. It probably yeah. changed you forever, not just because you came to the Mets and resigned there, but you go from being, sure. you know, you know, drafted by the Dodgers. You're in L.A. You're having success. You have this great 97. The Dodgers are a good team, and then you have total chaos in your life for ten, you know, ten days, and then you're in this new yeah. city uh, that's not really embracing you media-wise. Like, do you think about all the things that had to happen? Hunley getting hurt, you getting traded, the Mets actually pulling the trigger on the trade, like. Is it kind of surreal, I would think, for you looking back? Because your career is – you're still a Hall of Famer, but we're not talking now yeah. maybe, and, and maybe you're totally in a different city, right? You're not in New York uh, right now uh, for the Mets. That's, that's a good point. I, I just think it, it goes back to, to you know, I'm, I'm a man of faith, and I believe in destiny, and I believe things happen for a reason. I think we all have uh, certain events that we make choices but I do believe sometimes choices are made for us. And, um, yeah, I mean, to go through and, and think about it, I mean, coming up with the Dodgers and, and having all-star years there and arguably having, um, you know, one, obviously one of my best years there in 97. And then having uh, – it, it really came down, I think, when Fox bought the team because it was probably one of the first corporate – takeovers of the team. I mean, Peter, Peter O'Malley was the last family owned team or was a family owned team. And he very old school, obviously the father moved the team from Brooklyn and he was, I think when the revenue sharing went in, I think he was tired because then they were going to have to cut checks to, to um, the angels who, who were actually considered a small market team at the time, if you could believe that. So yeah. he was getting out of the game for, for obvious reasons. And then when Fox took over the team for some reason, and I think if far, part of the fault was me, with me was just immaturity and the competitiveness. And my agent and I, I think, made some mistakes in the sense that we we were a little bit uh, just it was it was immaturity, and I think there could have been a compromise if we had cooler heads. But on the same note, Fox for some reason just dug their heels in, and I don't understand why it became so contentious, but it did. And um, they obviously traded me when the Marlins were dismantling a World Series team the, the year before. I mean, they won the World Series in Heizenga. I don't know why, or maybe he didn't get a stadium or whatever the case may be. So, as you mentioned, the timing was just incredible because I don't think the Dodgers at the time could have made that trade if they didn't feel, or if the fans of the media there didn't feel like they were getting value back. I mean, they got Gary Sheffield, who had some really good years for them, and I think Charles Johnson and Jim Eisenreich and Bobby Bonilla actually believe it or not. So, yep. which Mets fans know very well. So, sure. um, yeah. And then, as you said, to get to the Marlins and and know what they were what they were doing there, and it, I just felt like I believe in it. I was going to be there for a day or two, 
ended up being like about 10 days. But the only good part of that was I got to play with Jim Leland. And, and I never forget Jim Leland the day I got there. He brings me into his office and he's smoking a cigarette like always. And he said to me, Mike, he goes, let me tell you something. He says, you deserve your money and you're going to get paid. And don't let anybody tell you otherwise. He said, I'm going to take care of you here. He goes, I want you to stay in shape because you may not, he goes, you may not even play uh, before we, we trade you. But he says, I just want you to know that, you know, I think a lot of you and, and there's no question you're going to get what you deserve. And the first game, it was funny. He was like seventh inning with, uh, with Todd Stottlemyre pitching in St. Louis. And he said, Piazza, grab a bat. It was a pinching situation. <laughs> I didn't have a cup on. I don't even think I had spikes on, but I went out and I hit a, a sacrifice fly. And the next day I played. So I was like, well, so much for not playing. <laughs> so it was a funny story. Funny. And then obviously the Mets trade, which brought me here, was pretty crazy. So, uh, but as you mentioned, um, those circumstances were, were, were definitely a crazy time for me. And as I look back, I, I sometimes question and, and don't, uh, it's, it's tough because it was emotionally straining and it was a time of stress, but, uh, you know, thank God it all worked out. Yeah. And you, and it was funny because you led me to my next question. You said about immaturity and you've looked back, you're now have been a team owner. I understand it's in a different sport, but do you have yeah. you, you must give you a different perspective of okay you're the player and you were in the union and I I agree with Leland you deserve to be paid and look either the owners get it or you get it there's a big pie and and I think the fans forget yeah. are you going to split the pie one way or the other you could argue about salaries and firefighters and we all understand that but the pie is the pie and I think when I read your book I got the impression you were even maybe seven eight years ago you were still a little ticked at the Dodgers has that dissipated for you it'd be I, it'd be, everyone appreciates the Mets and what you mean to the Mets, but that's obviously an important part of your career. Do you, do you look back yeah, now yeah. a little differently at those years and not as angry maybe? Although, again, my perception reading that book many, many years ago that yeah. you still felt the Dodgers didn't appreciate you for a variety of reasons. Well, <clears throat> well, to answer the, the latter, yes. I mean, I don't carry any animosity towards the Dodgers, and I was very um, specific at that when, in my Hall of Fame speech. And Truth be told, it was a great organization to come up with. I mean, coming up in spring training with Sandy Koufax there and Don Drysdale before he passed away and um, Pee Wee Reese and and, uh, Roy Campanella and and being a Dodger town and and the way they bred you as being a Dodger, bleeding Dodger blue and all those things. Um, And Tommy, obviously, um, it was – was instrumental. I mean, they gave me an opportunity. Um, I did produce and I worked hard, but they did give me the chance and I'll always be grateful of that. But I would not, I would be lying to say if the way things went down, it was definitely disappointing. And even so as a player, you look back and things are not uh, um, as significant, I guess, in the media, but when you're a player and you're trying to get paid and they're leaking certain things about your health, and uh, I think there was an article in Sports Illustrated where Peter Gammon said, my knees are bone to bone, and so there was this movement, I think, at the time to sort of, um, because I bucked the system, and I guess I really turned on a traditional team as the Dodgers were, uh, there was this sort of movement, and I felt a lot of cheap shots were coming from the media. And I mean, you talk with my wife about the team, and and when I get when that happens, and I'm like, you know what? I just go into my shell, and I don't really worry about. I'm like, I, I say, screw it. If you're gonna take shots at me, I'm just gonna just just go into my shell and do my job, and not um, and not respond because I can't. You can't fight everybody. I mean, as Tommy used to say, you can't fight someone who buys ink by the gallon and paper by the ton. So um, I just, you know, got quiet, went into my shell, tried to, to do my job on the field. And fortunately in New York at the end of 98, I started producing and turned the fans uh, into my favor and was able to, to, to stay here. But yeah, yes, at the that's time, interesting. I, I was really, I was really, really bummed out because of, because of all that I felt like I did for the organization and, uh, with LA. But at this point, no, I don't, I don't have any animosity. Um, I've had some discussions with them in the last 10 years about possibly 
doing at least coming back in some, not coming back to work or anything like that, but just, you know, maybe a tribute or something. It's never materialized because we're living in Italy now and it's just logistically tough, but who knows? I never say never, but, but um, at this point, uh, you know, we don't really, uh, it, it, there's no animosity at all. Yeah, and you, you mentioned that season and it kind of going to shell. You, know, you came to New York, and, and now you're getting criticized. And I, I ran the numbers just before I came on with you, and I'm like, I remember the boos. I remember the criticism. I remember the media criticisms. And maybe you'd had a couple at-bats that you didn't produce. But then I look at the numbers. Like, other than May, there are 97 numbers with the Mets. And I'm like, it's amazing because back then, again, you don't have the internet like today. You don't have baseball reference. You don't have all these numbers. And I'm like, everything is perception. Everything is at bat to bat TV, radio. And I'm like, the guy's numbers were the same. And I got to tell you personally, I didn't think you were going to come back. Uh, Everyone said you didn't want to be there. Was there a point where that was true and then maybe things turned because of the the way the season was went? Uh, everyone was surprised you you stayed with the Mets because they felt, well, Colorado's better for him. Baltimore's better for him. He wants to go back to the Dodgers. Everyone had an opinion. The only person that didn't talk yeah. was you because, like you said, you were kind of uh-huh. in you know, protection <laughs> mode. Well, it's interesting. Was there a point where I thought I wouldn't be in New York? Yeah, there, of course there was. I mean, when I first got here, it was, it was um, as you mentioned, I was getting some hits, but I guess – I, I always say I pioneered the runners in scoring position average because people would say, well, Mike's hitting 360, but he's only hitting 290 with runners in scoring position, you know, because of, if I would leave some guys on base and uh, obviously as a 300 hitter, you have to get hit. So maybe my first or second bat I would, and at times there was, I was getting a hit my first or second at bat. And then, you know, in the seventh inning, I'd ground into a double play and, and, and everyone would boo and, Look, there's no question I was meant, you know, the most important part as a hitter, especially a hitter in the middle of the lineup, is to be a run producer. So I don't shy from that, and I don't feel like I was slighted because of that. But then when I started getting confidence and feeling comfortable, look, it just takes time. I mean, it's a huge – it was a huge environmental shift. I mean, I'm living on the beach in Los Angeles and, uh, you know, walking around in flip-flops and sandals and then getting in a car and driving to Dodger Stadium and the fans love me and – and the the girls love me, and everyone's screaming your name. And then next thing you know, you're in the you know the cauldron that is New York because uh, it's just, it was a different environment, and and it was more laid back in Los Angeles. Um, until my contract dispute, I never got booed in L.A. So when I was getting booed here, it was like a new experience, and I really didn't know how to handle it. And then I eventually came around, and I figured it out that New York fans are passionate. They have a blue collar attitude. They just, they love their team. And I mentioned that in my hall of fame speech. I think it made me better. I mean, it was not easy to go through, uh, but I, I buckled down and I was able to start producing. And even in 99 and 2000, I mean, you, you still have those stretches where you're struggling and the fans are going to let you hear about it. And that's part of being in New York. So um, I, once I embraced it fully and realized that as I was here for a reason, then I knew I had to see it out and sign here. No question. Yeah. And was funny, 98, 99, 2000, three seasons. But sometimes when you talk about that era, because I know the obvious is a one and then after that, but it's almost like that's one season. You went through all these things, but it yeah. was like this, this story that led to making the World Series and then coming up a little bit short. And then the, the organization changed for a variety of reasons, and you were on the back half of your career. But is it funny because it's like it starts in May of 98, and then that era ends almost continuously in the Subway Series in 2000. It's just weird how it's looked at, I guess, through the Mets history books. It's almost like one big story within a, you know, a larger book at that point. I don't know if you look at it the same way, but it was like that narrative that you guys were kind of going up the hill you know, as a team with some different yeah, parts yeah. along the way. Yeah. Well, it's kind of like course, there's people. Well, there's also people that argue, and I think all of us would agree that I think the '99 team was probably a little bit better um, as far as pound for pound talent. The 2000 team, we we made some changes. Obviously, John Olerud, and I love playing with John Olerud, and of course Todd Deal stepped in and did a great job for us in 2000. Uh, but but Johnny was was such a great hitter and. Um, that infield we had. I mean, I remember catching in 99. It was like as soon as the ground ball was hit, I started walking off the field if there was two outs or if there was a guy off because it was an automatic double play. I think those guys, what did they have, like 10 errors that year? I mean, that was an amazing special team. And 
2000 was special too because we had some characters and grittiness and you know we had Bubba Trammell and brought in Mike Bordick I think because Ray got hurt and uh, Derek Bell and guys like that so um, yeah it was it was and then obviously it seems like after 2000 and even 2001 as much as um, I think the the tragedy of 2001 September also maybe had an effect on the team because that was when the team went into a little bit of an abyss, you know, we just kind of lost our way and we lost, you know, we changed over. And, and so I think that event trans kind of transcended over to us. And, um, and obviously I left it after 2005. So um, yeah, it was a, it was definitely an interesting run and a lot of happiness and great times with obviously tragedy and sadness through that year as well. So, I mean, something that you just, you can't uh, you can't script out. <laughs> it's something that you really couldn't imagine. I have Mike Piazza with me. A couple things, Mike. I know you have to run. Just a couple more things. Um, yeah, yeah. Everyone talks about the the nine eleven home run. You've talked about it a lot. But when you think about your, you know, maybe it's the Dodgers, maybe it's the Mets. Are there other home runs that stand out for you? I mean, I think about the ten run inning home run against the Braves, yeah. Houston home run, your two hundredth home run. Those stand out. If you had to take nine eleven out, because that's in a different, you know, category. Sure. Is there a home run or two that you always like when you think about your career? You just think about that at bat uh, and say, "Man, that was that was cool. That was that was a highlight." If you take nine eleven uh, completely out of the equation, well, maybe to go against the grain a little bit. Obviously, I had some big home runs with the Mets and the Dodgers, but um, my year with San Diego in two thousand six, I think, was probably overlooked a little bit. I mean, you know, I was coming off a tough year with the with the Mets and they brought Willie in and obviously there was changes made and then they had the good year in 2006 and people don't understand, which is something very interesting. We lost to the Cardinals in the first round of the playoffs when I was with the Padres in 2006. And then when I came back here, obviously I had the game against Pedro where I hit the two home runs, but we almost ended up playing the Mets for the league championship series, which would have been really awkward and, and, and really different in a way. I mean, I, played for Bruce Bochy and I hit my 400th home run that year. Uh, and uh, coming out of eight years in New York, it was, it was, it was a fun team to be on. We had really interesting characters, Woody Williams and, you know, uh, Giles and, and uh, Adrian Gonzalez and guys like that. He was just coming up. So um, uh, that, that was a year for me that I, I, a lot of people don't really talk about. I mean, rightfully so, but it was a fun year for me. And so I, that was a year I remember as like my, a little bit of a rebirth. I had a decent, I forget how many home runs I had, but obviously I mentioned the foreign ones. So, so that was a interesting year. And then obviously next year I played with Oakland and, and didn't do well, but, but nonetheless, that, that was something for me that is, a, that is a nice memory as well. You know, you're in, you know, as an owner and management, I know that, you know, you weren't the coach of the soccer team, but you, it's well documented. You tried to fire those guys up. Now you played for uh, Tommy Lasorda, Bobby Valentine. You mentioned Bruce Bochy. I'm assuming every manager you took good and, you know, and things you didn't like away from. Did you kind of meld your leadership style from, from those guys? Is it, you know, maybe growing up and, and your dad or just you being, you know, you were always known, I guess, as, leader by example, because you were always sometimes mm-hmm. very reserved and quiet with the media. But now yeah. in the soccer realm, you were positioned as a fiery, you know, you know, Newt Rockney speech guy, which was a little <laughs> different when I read that. I was like, wow, that's, uh, you know, not that I was in the clubhouse, well, but I'm like, that's not how you would describe. But again, pre-internet, like, again, there was the internet, but it was a different world when yeah. you played. You had, you know, writers kind of controlling some of the, the narrative at that point. Yes. That's correct. Yeah, that's correct. There was, it was, and the fan, remember the fan? I remember real quick. I was, I think we were playing Arizona one night and there was an overthrow of first base and I didn't score. I kind of got in the pickle between third and, uh, and home. And I ended up getting back to third and we ended up losing the game. And so the next day everyone's like, you know, you listen to the fan. And I go, what are you talking about? They're like, Hey, they're blowing you up. They're saying you should have scored. I mean, the, you know, it was like this all night thing and talking about how I wasn't hustling or I didn't score. Some, I can't even remember the game, but yeah, the, the, the things were different. I mean, I was definitely a fiery player, but I don't think it was visible or it was exposed because it just, as you mentioned, it was, it was maybe also self-preservation here because 
I, I knew I had to maintain a business-like attitude every day, not get too high, not get too low. And uh, with transferring over to the owner, when your money's on the line, obviously you don't care anymore. You're like, I don't care. I'm just going to throw it all out there and try to get the guys to inspire. Um, and that was an experience as well. But one note on that, I, I think as much as it was, and I call it a successful failure, um, I learned a lot. I appreciate a lot about the game. Uh, I definitely um, don't take for granted how blessed I was to to have made what I made and, you know, tell the guys today how lucky they are and how you have to enjoy your career because in a blink it's gone. So I think, um, you know, these experiences, even though they may not be successful on the outset, you have to take some nuggets from them and you have to take some positives away even from a tough experience. So as much as it was frustrating and obviously talked to Alicia about it many times, um, you move on, you move on and, and you, you go forward and you try to recover. And as an investor, you know, if you have a tough time, you lick your wounds and you look for the next project and you try to stay positive. So I've always been very, very uh, helpful for me. So very, very blessed and, even- and very happy. Even when, you know, you were, and that's around the time your book came out, when you were up for induction to the Hall of Fame, every year you inched up, you became closer. I remember at uh, the day they had for you at City Field, I was covering the game, and people were asking you, you know, are you frustrated, the allegations? You know, of course, everything comes out, everything about, you know, what you did or what you didn't do, rumors and stuff. But now, you know, all that garbage is behind you. You're in the Hall of Fame. Um, is that kind of like in the past now? Or do you still say, you know, it shouldn't have been that hard? Uh, because they couldn't really turn a, a good day for you, you know, solemn. But it was funny. Once you got elected, all the nonsense stopped. And uh, you had a great Hall of Fame speech. And I'm I'm assuming the connection you had to your dad that day is a big part of it. But uh, yeah. I thought about that. It was almost a microcosm of your career. And, and now you're into another career. Is that nobody really wants to deal with you. And, and, and they doubt you. And then you're battling this, you know, this these forces. And then it's you succeed. And now... You know, it's on to the next thing. It's kind of funny how each of your stages, as I was reading uh, about you, is kind of been a microcosm. The same story, just different players, different situations yeah, that come up. You know, I think uh, – I don't know if any road's really easy, but if there is an easy road, I definitely don't know it. That's for sure. Uh, I, and I think it's meant to be that way. I know everyone goes through their own struggles and, and things like that, and I think maybe um, – there were some weird moments. I mean, you know, it's tough every time too, when I do an event and everyone wants to talk about the Roger Clemens event, you know, with the bat and all, you didn't mention that. So I was like, of course I'm, I'm drawing it up. So, um, yeah, I mean, definitely some strange moments, but how do I put it? I believe there is spiritual warfare out there and I believe maybe, um, there is this, this, uh, underlying tone maybe to, to not believe that, that a story like mine is possible. Um, you know, there are no Cinderella stories that, you know, that, that type of thing. And I felt that in a way, but and and I think when I tell people, I said, man, you know, I am the, the prototypical American success story, a guy who, who struggled and, and had a little bit of talent and was able to find a position and work hard and, um, got people in his life who really looked out for him and, and were able to contribute. And, and it's no less than a miracle. I mean, as far as I believe, I believe in that. And as I've mentioned before, I'm a man of faith, but with that comes spiritual warfare and people that are trying to, to discredit you and uh, jealousy and all these things are very powerful emotions. So kind of getting back to it. Yeah. I mean, I, I, as I said, keep it in perspective. And I always say, I always thank God for what I have, not for what I don't have. So if I had to take some bullets so other guys can, can, if I had to be the point guy, so other guys can, can walk in and, and, and uh, enjoy the moment as well. So be it. It's something that I wear, uh, you know, as a badge of honor. You know, uh, I'm a radio guy and people may not remember that you, uh, when you played here in New York, you did a little DJing on Q1043 with Eddie Trunk and uh, and music. And I was reading a couple of things. Like, you would just, after games, pop in. Um, and you your walk-up songs were the first ones I kind of remember because they were just coming in. You had Voodoo Child when you came, Home Sweet Home, yeah, Motley yeah. Crew, I think Tom Sawyer. So, you know, yeah. I was talking to some people. They're like, you got to ask Mike, well, number one, what was your favorite walk-up song? And uh, 
how was it being, you know, a pseudo DJ on the radio? Maybe that's something you could do in your retirement. If uh, you don't want to get into the sauce with ownership anymore, you could get a, a radio station somewhere or a podcast and just talk music and, uh, and hang out from midnight to 4 a.m. If you, uh, you can't sleep. So I thought I'd bring the music. Part yeah. Up. Yeah, no, I, I love music and I put something, if anyone checks out my, my social media that I, my brother recently got married and, the band came up to me and I, I'm a amateur drummer as well. And I played drums my whole life. And I was fortunate when I was in LA to get drum instruction instructions by a drummer named Greg, Greg Bissonette, who's uh, an amazing drummer. He played with David Lee Roth and Steve Lukifer with Toto and all these other guys. And so, um, yeah, the band asked me a few weeks ago, they were like, you know, do you want to jam? And I was like, well, what's wrong? You know, and we found out we did the one with Eric Clapton, not the best wedding song, but cocaine, but I got up and drug jammed the song with them. And so, yeah, I love music. I mean, and, and you know, the best part about music too, is I'm playing my songs in the car and now my kids are, are liking my music. I mean, it's crazy. I mean, my daughter's like, daddy is ACDC going to tour, you know, could we go to the show? And I'm like, what? <laughs> you know, she's, she's 12 years old. So it's, it's, I'm like, yeah, I go, yeah, let's, I'll take you to the show. So, um, they love my songs, and obviously I, their songs. I don't. I don't know. I don't know a lot of modern music, but but just from what I listen to them. So it's it's a generational thing. Music brings everyone together, and it's fun. And yeah, the walk up song was Voodoo Child. A lot of people still mention to me how much they remember me coming up, and I actually stole that from when Hulk Hogan and Randy Macho Man Savage. I forget the the team they had when they were coming out uh, in the old WWF days, but they used to come out the Voodoo Child, and I thought, man, that is cool, man. I'm going to use that as my walk-up music. So truth be told, I ripped it off from Hulk Hogan and uh, Randy Macho Man Savage. I'll I'll throw this last one at you. So Home Sweet Home, Motley Crue, I kid you not, on the radio that year when you first came over, fans were calling and saying, see, he doesn't want to be here. He's pining for L.A. playing Home Sweet Home. So that was funny how your, everything was dissected and, 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 and how your walk-up song. So I thought of that because I always remember that call, and I'm like, really? Could you really dissect that? And that kind of became a little talk. So that's how it works. He doesn't want to be here. He's pining for L.A. He wants to go back to L.A. Home sweet home is his. You know, it's like now when you see with Kevin Durant and the NBA and how everybody has that inside source. Think about if you were doing your deal now, how everybody would have a, a source that Mike Piazza wants to play here. It's amazing how – the worm turns a little bit, but yeah, that was, that was part of home sweet home became a little controversial for a day or two on, on talk radio. So you never know how your walk up song impacts. That's funny. Hey, uh, Mike, That's it's true. been a pleasure. You, you were very generous of your time. Thank you so much at Mike Piazza, 31 Instagram. I'm sure we'll see you at the ballpark. Be well. Uh, and, 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 uh, looking forward to seeing your next venture, whether it be ownership or something else, but thank you again. I, I really appreciate your time. My pleasure. Let's go Matt. Thanks Mike. Take care. That's Mike Piazza. You guys heard it. I thought we got some interesting little nuggets out of him, something a little bit different, and uh, hopefully you enjoyed it. You're listening to the Talking Mets podcast. We'll be back with more right after this. Hey, Mets fans. I'm going to let you in on a little secret. If you're looking for the best unbiased and independent coverage of the New York Mets, then look no further than MetsmerizedOnline.com. Metsmerized Online is the go-to place for comprehensive Mets coverage, including exclusive interviews, daily original articles, great weekly features, in-depth analysis, minor league reports, game-by-game breakdowns, and so much more. Find out why thousands of fans turn to Metsmerized Online every day to get the latest news and opinions about the Mets. Coming from an impressive staff of the most passionate fans and skilled writers ever assembled all in one place. Check it out for yourselves, Mets fans. Go to MetsmerizedOnline.com right now. That's Mets, M-E-R-I-Z-E-D, online.com, and get Metsmerized today. All right, final thoughts. I don't want to belabor the Piazza podcast, but I want to throw two things to you that really I wanted to point out before we wrapped up here to really that really stood out to me about Piazza's career before we wrap up number one I don't think it's understated about how important that trade was to the Mets and it's funny because today I don't know if that trade would be viewed well by the media because the Mets gave up three young players two pitchers Preston Wilson who had some uh, ability 
for a guy, a catcher who was in his prime, but somebody who was a rental, a team that even with Piazza, probably many would feel was still a contender for a championship. Um, and and a guy that even if they did sign him was going to be giving you a significant portion of his career in his 30s. Now, people didn't look at stuff that way then. Uh, we're a little bit different now for a variety of reasons, players in their 30s. But that would have been the the negatives that would have been out there. And maybe you would have scared away the ownership from making that deal and, and playing it safe. And, and I think that's an example of how I always say sometimes you got to go for it. And I know we've talked a lot about that, but the Mets went for it. Steve Phillips went for that. I know it was uh, the rumors, and who knows what's true, if it was really uh, uh, Nelson Doubleday uh, over the uh, over the Wilpons and, and Phillips not wanting it. it. There's so many different things that come into play there. But regardless, it was that important. It helped attendance. It revived the fan base that had been dormant, that it saw the Yankees win a couple of years earlier, who had a nice little team but needed to be taken seriously. So... That's the lesson number one. That was critically important. I think Mets history is so different, uh, and maybe not in a good way, without Piazza. So I don't think that that's being overstated. Number two, if you want to look at all-time offensive seasons, and you want to just use OPS+, plus, which weights versus the, the league, the ballpark, all that stuff, individual seasons, 97-95 Piazza season, 2098, which he's criticized for having some bad uh, seasons are four of the top 25 all time. If you if you sort it on baseball reference, you make the catching criteria 85% of the game. So he's, they're really catchers. They're not guys who are popping in behind the plate for 30, 40 games, maybe 70 games. Uh, Piazza's 97 is the all-time best offensive season as a catcher. Uh, better than Johnny Bench, uh, better than Roy Campanella. Yogi Berra's not even in the top 25. I think part of that is because Yogi played a lot of other positions. Uh, Bill Dickey, Mickey Cochran, it's just amazing. And, and the funny part is Piazza's 95, the strike-shortened season. I mean, there's two seasons that are better than that, OPS plus-wise. That's Deacon White and Cal uh, McVay. Both are from the 1800s. So I got to tell you, I mean, I, I could take the 1800 players and throw them out because uh, I kind of don't count those. I mean, he's got three of the best offensive seasons, 95, 96, 97. And that's what the Mets were acquiring, all-time great seasons. And, yeah, he wore down a little bit. He was getting older. Um, you know, his 93, his rookie season's a top 20. I mean, it's just an incredible offensive player, and I don't think everybody really remembers that. And it's more than Clemens. It's more than 9-11. It's more than just the 2000 World Series. There's a lot there, and I think it's incredible. I mean, that 97 campaign – OPS over 1,000, 362 batting average, 40 homers, 124 RBIs, almost as many walks as strikeouts. Uh, it's very hard to do while you're catching every day and doing all the things that we discussed in this podcast that, that, that require you to be a quality receiver. So it's just amazing to me, and I, and I think it's overlooked. So anyway, we're out of time. I want to thank Mike Piazza. Of course, you could check him out on Twitter and Instagram at MikePiazza31. I want to thank all the good folks over at MetsmorizedOnline.com for supporting this podcast. Of course, you could check me out at, at MikeSilvaMedia. You can get this podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, pretty much whatever podcasting service you desire. I'm your host, Mike Silva. Happy Father's Day. Enjoy the rest of your week. We'll be back with another Talking Mets podcast pretty soon. Take care, everybody.
Catch those springtime vibes all over Arizona. Break out of the winter blues by hitting the water at one of our lake and river parks. Take a hike among the wildflowers. Just make sure to stay on the trails and leave the flowers for the bees. Discover Arizona's best kept secret and visit azstateparks.com slash amazing to start your springtime adventure. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.